There's, uh, there's coloring sheets. I made coloring sheets for the kiddos today to kind of help with that. Um, but we're gonna dive right in. Youth, I'm sorry that you ha you're stuck with all us old crusty people, uh, but we will be back to having youth uh, the next time when we can actually get into the space to have youth. It's not, unfortunately, not big enough to have youth and us out here at the same time. So, but maybe that was God's way because today we're gonna talk about a topic that does not get talked about a lot in the messianic roots base of Christianity. And when it does, quite honestly, it's, it's quite scary. Some of the, some of the theologies and uh, things that are attached with, we're gonna talk about salvation, uh, the doctrine of salvation, what is salvation? Because quite honestly, we started off all these classes talking about Jesus. And maybe it's the providence of God that all the youth and the kids are here because I don't care what else we teach you. If we don't teach you about Jesus and we don't teach you why Jesus is our salvation and why that's important, then I don't care how much Aramaic, Greek, Hebrew, anything else you know, um, it's all a moot point. And so, so terriology, caught myself, I was gonna go in a completely different direction on the pronunciation, but I listened to it like 20 times this morning. The internet is so cool. It's like, you don't know how to say a word, they will tell you how to say it, and they'll do it with different accents. So teriology is a term that uh, I want you guys to be familiar with. Seems like it's this like big thing, it really isn't. So teriology is the doctrine of salvation, that's what it means. It's the study of theology dealing with the Greek word soteria, salvation, relating to Soter, the Savior, and the Lagos, the Word and Doctrine. In our corner of Christianity, there's been many, many convoluted concepts to try to explain salvation. Um, I personally was at a youth camp one year. Um, we had our theme, everything was set up, we were ready to go, and about two days in, in our morning staff meetings, all the staffs that we, we had an open time of dialogue and we're like, hey, how's it going? How's the theme going? Whatever. And they're like, uh, these kids don't know what salvation is. These kids are answer, asking just basic questions. These are kids who've grown up reading, reading the Bible every week in Torah portions and studies and all these things. Um, they probably can quote more Bible than a lot of people in a lot of different denominations, but they had no idea what salvation was and how to explain it and what happened after that is one of the reasons why I feel like it's important for us to do that. Amongst the adults came a very convoluted conversation trying to explain how we were going to teach these young people what is salvation, why is salvation important. There was massive amounts of theology thrown around and temple service and a lot of different other topics and things like that. Um, and quite honestly, it's, it's, it's not that convoluted. So number one, what salvation is not. I want to make sure we all understand salvation is not works-based. You cannot earn your salvation through what you say, what you do. You cannot earn it. And, and, and we say that a lot in our corner. It's like, oh, we don't have a works-based salvation. But subconsciously, there are a lot of individuals who will profess with their lips, well, I don't, I don't have a works-based salvation. And then how they practice their faith is so rigid that it makes you question whether they actually believe what they're saying or not. Because your salvation isn't dependent upon how you step, how you walk, how long your zitziot are, how you keep the Sabbath, some of the things that are very crucial for us. Now, I'm not saying you should be willy-nilly with the commandments of God either, but there's a fine line, and for our core group of people, our line is normally more on the rigid side. 
It's not more on the name it, claim it. Let's be a little bit more grace-minded. Um, terminology like we're under the law, we're under grace, we pit them against each other, all those types of things. Salvation is not works-based. If you think that salvation is works-based, you are minimizing the gift, the free gift given to us through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus and his blood. Matthew 19, 23 through 26. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished saying, who can be saved? We hear that a lot. Who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible but with God, all things are possible. So if man had the ability to save themselves through what they did, how much knowledge they had, whatever, then it would make this scripture null and void. With God, all things are possible. With us, without God. Have you ever tried to put a camel through a, I have a needle. There's an old thing where Chris Farley puts on a jacket and it's a tiny jacket, and he goes, fat guy in a little coat. Yeah, that's easier than a camel through the eye of a needle. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 5, 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the, great, have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, abounded for many. Number two, salvation is not a New Testament concept. That's not really an aha moment for most people in this room. Salvation is not a New Testament concept. Exodus 14, 13. In fact, I think this week, Brent, either this week, yeah, I think it was this week, Brent mentioned it in his sermon where it says, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation, Yeshua, of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The, tes the, the testimony of salvation is interwoven literally from Genesis to Revelation. The entire story is talking about the fact that men need the divine. And the divine loves us enough that he puts up with men. Revelation 13, 8, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. It's not a New Testament concept. It didn't show up in Rome. It didn't show up in Greece. It didn't show up. This is a concept that's, that's interwoven since the foundations of the world. This, the reason why I didn't start with this and I started with who is Jesus the first week is because if you have a distorted view of who Jesus is, what his role is, how he interacted and why he interacted that way, the scriptures like before the lamb was slain doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you start to put all of them together. Well, if, the, if Jesus was just human, then he wasn't the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. If he didn't have a hypostatic union or a divine nature, if he wasn't God in the flesh, then he had a timeline. And that's all he had, was a timeline. He had a timeline from the moment that his mom gave birth to him to the moment that he died, and that's it. Two, salvation is simple. Luke 10, 21 through 22. In the same hour he received in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, 
that you have hid, hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Those who are speaking an overcomplicated gift of salvation with their wisdom and expounding understanding have had this revelation hidden from them while they're still eating and questing after the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, Cam and Matthew, in that closet right there, I think there's uh, some stacked up folding chairs. Can you grab a couple out for, uh, for Russell and for Connor? Those who seek to overcomplicate the gift of salvation with their wisdom and expounded understanding have had this revelation hidden from them while they're questing after eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This comes after I read Luke 10, 21 through 22, where it says, all things have been handed over to me, excuse me, in the same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal himself. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are saved, it is the power of God. Salvation is simple. It's the power of God. It's the offering gift of God. If we're perishing, we need not look inside ourselves to try to have some better understanding, some better power, some more infinite wisdom. It's about being humble and submitted to the power of the Holy Spirit and who God is in his entirety. Number four, salvation was from before the foundations of the world. We hinted on that a little bit with Revelations 13, 8. God knew Adam would tr transgress his commandments. And no, I don't want to get into Calvinist or non-Calvinist thought process in that um, I actually like some of the points on both sides. So I remain neutral in those concepts. But I do believe if, if it says that before the foundations of the world, to some extent, God knew what would happen. Does that mean we don't have free will? No, that's not, that's not what that means. But at the same point in time, God isn't up there like, oh my gosh, I had no idea you were going to do what I asked you not to do. And he's just pleasantly surprised when you obey. Like, I mean, he's all knowing he's infinite. He set into motion a progressive plan that a mediator would have to officiate God's propitiation. I love it when you say it because it's so easy for you to say that word. Propitiation for the sins and the transgressions of others. This is what happens when I start using real English and not my little dumbed down words. We see this as with the covenant that was made with Abraham. God put Abraham, Abram asleep at that point and he walked through the pieces of the covenant. This isn't, it isn't just like, oh my goodness, we get to the cross and somehow how does Jesus all of a sudden take on God and our portion of the covenant? We talked about this as well when we were talking about the different covenants. Uh, I believe it was right before the Day of Atonement when we were doing that sermon series. There is a long history, Old Testament and New Testament, where God upholds not only his portion, 
but he also upholds our portion for us. Um, that's, that's the loving father that's there. You know, if something's going on in your life, Landon, and all of a sudden, like, you're like, I can't figure this out. I can't do this. Your dad would step in and do heaven and hell to make sure that he could help you through that. Well, this is the example on the earth. Take the Bible out. Take all, I don't know Greek, I don't know Hebrew. If you have a loving father in your home and you are a child, those are examples of exactly how God treats you and the adults, your parents. And so when you see your, your, your father being loving to your mother, being loving to you, doing things that it's like, oh, hey, I did the chores. I know this is really basic, but like, hey, your job is to do the chores. Well, he, I didn't do it. And your father got up and did those for you. That's the same thing. God does things for his children because he loves you, even though we fail literally every single day. When speaking of the high priest of Jesus in the book of Hebrews, sorry, Brent, I'm, not, I'm going to try to stay away from the latter part, let you do your thing. Uh, we see this in Hebrews chapter 2, 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Therefore, the perfect and final salvation had to be a mediator who was flesh like us and a mediator who was God like God. This goes back to that terminology, the hypostatic union. There was multiple different portions, the divine and the flesh. Jesus as the son of God was called, both called the son of man and the son of God. This ties right back into one of the early portions of week one of, of who is Jesus is if you get to the book of Hebrews, which is what we're going through right now, and you don't understand some of these concepts that are there, this is why we have people throwing the book of Hebrews out of the Bible. We have it turning around and saying it's only relevant for a specific day of the year. Like they, they take it and they, they try to fit it into a theology, fit it into a framework, fit it into a doctrine they have, rather than fitting ourselves into the word of God. One is exactly what we're supposed to do. You are supposed to fit your life into the Word of God. You're not supposed to read the Bible and take the Bible and try to fit the Bible to your life. One makes you the God. The other one submits to the actual God of all creation. Number five, the temporal mediators. And I know this is something that, that is going to need more fleshed out than I'm going to be willing to go into today. But when we get to the further portions of Hebrews, I believe we'll get into that. The temporal mediators. Uh, the establishment of the nation of Israel, God set forth commandments in the Levitical priesthood. There's arguments over the law beforehand. Was it an oral law? Was there some form of a written law? What was this? Obviously, Noah knew what was right and wrong when God spoke to him because he obeyed. He obeyed a really crazy commandment. Like, hey, I'm going to protect you and your family. I'm going to do this. Like, how many of you today would still be here if I was like, God spoke to me. He told me to build a boat. He's going to flood the earth. I need you all to help me because you're all going to go with me. You're going to be like, dude is off his rocker. He is a cult leader. And we need to run. Same thing if I was like, hey, look, you know, like times are getting really, really bad. So like we need to go buy property in the middle of nowhere and we all need to build houses and build our church out there and you need to come live with me. You'd be like, eh, uh, I mean, I don't know. Like, 
maybe I'm willing to give it a shot. Like I'm a pretty open person. And then you get out there and you're like, oh, he tells me when I can, when I can milk the cows and when I can do this. And like, no, that's, that's, that's unhealthy to approach it that way. Temporal mediators. So God had some sort of agreement, some sort of relationship, some sort of dialogue we see throughout Genesis all the way to the Mosaic Covenant. We talked about the Abrahamic Covenant. We talked about the differences in the Mosaic Covenant before. And so at the establishment of a people, uh, Isaac used to say this a lot. He used to say, I like to consider uh, the terminology that I am a bond servant of the Lord. So what the Lord did is the Lord took slaves. It's a people. It's a people with a promise. They were enslaved in Egypt and they were brought out. So how do you go from being a slave to a bond servant? How do you go from being a slave to be a family member? It's not an overnight process. Just like with us in our faith right now, how do you go to being a son and daughter of the Most High? Well, there's a lot of us in this room who've changed a lot of our thought processes on the Bible, a lot of our practices and stuff like that over the last couple of years. Why? We thought we had it all together. When my daughter told my mother when she was two, she's now 15, 13 years ago, that she was pegging because she kept Christmas, I thought I had it all together. I thought I knew everything. I thought it didn't matter how you did things. I have arrived in my understanding. We have these revelations. And all I did is I, I honestly shattered any ability for me to share the good things about my relationship with Christ and what God was doing. Because now she's like, you turned my, my two-year-old granddaughter, you turned against me because I've been doing something I've been doing for 60 years of my life. Oh, yeah. That's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Like, she's like, depart from me. I do not know you. No, she loved me. She was, she was a lot kinder than I was. So they established a Levitical priesthood, a priesthood and this was a heavy burden, a heavy burden. They had responsibilities. They had rules. There were certain ways to do it. And what happened, Isaac, when they chose not to obey the commandments and the rules of their priesthood with God? They were killed. Huh? Well, they got divorced, but he also killed people. You don't run into holy of holies. You don't, you don't offer strange fire. You don't do things that God told you not to do. So, as we look at it, this is partially why, if you come from a roots-based thought process, this is partially why everybody is in a place where a lot of times they're, they're really worried. They're like, if I transgress the Sabbath, if I do this, God is going to be... And some of it is, is ingrained in the study of the Levitical priesthood and what would happen. Some of it is in the judgment and the wrath of God. If you want to be a Levitical priest... And there isn't a Levite system now. There's not a temple now. So the closest thing we have is to those who serve in church bodies, home church bodies or churches. That's not something you do so that you can be sexy, so you can be cool, so that you can be hip, so that you can have 50 million followers on Instagram, so you can be an influencer. Because you're coming into an elevated position that, according to God, when you're serving his kingdom, when you're serving his people, there are higher rules and higher standards. So it must be about his people, his ways, his process. Not Brent's ways, not my ways, not anybody else's ways, his. Levitical 17, 11. The priesthood served as those mediators between God and humanity by shedding the blood of animal sacrifices. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by life. This 
was not an easy job. It was ongoing. They were responsible for packing up, transporting, setting up, tearing down, executing the instructions, all the daily protocols of taking the tabernacle in the wilderness. Those dudes were probably jacked by the time they were done. Like, that's a lot of, I mean, anybody who's gone and helped us set up some big Sukkots or whatever, yeah, multiply that by a lot, and then you do that for 40 years straight. That's not an easy task. They're like, hey, look, um, do we have like a keg of vino someplace where I can retire and not do this job anymore because this is hard work? No, it was a hard job. And they did that along with the showbread, the olive oil, the menorah lit, keeping a fire continuously going on the altar, all of those things. They did that because they cared and because they feared the Lord. So they wanted to keep his commandments and they wanted to be able to be the temporal mediators on this earth with the instructions that God gave them. Not only was that job hard, but then you had a high priest. We read about that in, in Hebrews 2 a minute ago. You had a high priest. The high priest was known as the Kohanim and he carried an even greater burden. <laughs> they carried the responsibility, the weight and severity with specific instructions once a year alone, can you imagine being the high priest who had to go into the Holy of Holies with all the testimony of those who have offered wrong fire, bad sacrifices, they rushed in not following the protocols, died on the spot, they've been divorced out. Can you imagine the pressure of saying like, oh my gosh, if I screw this up, not only did I not atone in my role that God told me to for all the people out there, but I don't even get, like, I, I'm dead. Like, I'm dead. Like, I'm dead. Like, they're going to drag my carcass out with a rope. Like, the last thing I see is like, boom, dead. That's a severity and a weight that the high priest would carry. I want you to think about the Levitical priesthood and the high priest, because when we start going through terminology like Hebrews chapter two and some of the other book of Hebrews, and it talks about mediators, high priest, that's not just some office of awesomeness. It's an office that bears a tremendous responsibility historically throughout God's entire system. So when it talks about Jesus being our high priest, like that's a weight. Maybe that helps us understand too in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's bawling his eyes out and he's crying and he's talking to his father. You know, a lot of times I was like, he knew what was going to happen to him. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure he did. Because he says, Father, if you want to take the cup from me, take the cup. But he also, I believe, saw the weight of every person who ever lived because he knew that he was taking the spot in the heavenly realm as the high priest as the once and for all mediator for every wrong every other person has ever done. He himself, God, was taking that on. Can you imagine that burden as you're sitting there? You're already, already in a place where you're like, I know I'm going to give my own life. I'm going to be betrayed. I, I'm going to miss my mom. I'm going to miss my friends. But then also the possible weight of the sins and the cares and the burdens of all people that had ever been. Mm. Numbers 18.1, so the Lord said to Aaron, you and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear the iniquity connected with the sanctuary, and you and your sons with you shall bear iniquity connected with your priesthood. That's 
the Levitical priesthood's role. They were the temporal priests, the temporal system for all of the nation of Israel. As long as there's a tabernacle, as long as there's a temple, they bear that burden. Hebrews chapter 7, 11. Not that I've gone through this one anytime soon. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Melchizedek, depending upon how you like to pronounce it. One sounds a little bit better, one sounds a little bit more right. Who knows? Rather than one named after the order of Aaron. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. The sacrificial system was perfect, perfect for the time it was created. But it was always a foreshadow of a heavenly high priest who would mediate once and for all in humanity. Do not allow anybody to ever tell you that you can be saved now, post-Jesus era, under the Levitical priesthood. It was perfect in its time. But this is where we get the works-based salvation. Oh, if there's a temple tomorrow, we can fly to Jerusalem, we can offer our sacrifices, and we can be atoned for. There is a high priest in the heavenly realm who atoned for your sins. Now, I'm not saying you should speak against the altar of the Lord. I'm not saying you should speak against the temple. I'm not saying, like replacement theology taught for years, if the Jews set up a temple and an altar, oh, we need to be the first ones calling to shut it down. No, that's not what I'm saying. Let's not swing the pendulum one side to the other. We have to get to a place where we understand the progressive nature of God. He had a better plan, but until that better plan came, until the better plan came, he needed to operate in a system that would allow it to work. So once again, we're not speaking against the little Levitical priesthood. We're not speaking against the house of the Lord or the altar of the Lord. But you cannot put the sacrifice of the high priest after the order of Melchizedek of the heavenly realm in the same category as the Levitical priesthood. I've said it multiple times over. I don't want to take you back to Sinai because a lot of times that's been said in the Messianic Hebrew Roots movement. Well, we, we need to go back to Sinai. We need to go back to Sinai. God took them from Sinai. Sinai was a starting place. It wasn't the end destination. The end destination is not Sinai. The end destination is not Moses. It's not Aaron. It is Yeshua alone. But all of those were perfect in their way because they were temporal salvation opportunities to constantly cleanse, holy and pure, to keep you from being profane. But then you have Jesus. And that changes everything. Kids, hear me. Hear me. Jesus changes everything. I want you to understand that. Everything. He changes everything. A foreshadow of a heavenly high priest who would mediate once for all time in humanity. Jesus was the perfect 
salvation sacrifice. He doesn't stand there and repeatedly offer himself over and over and over like they had to do with the blood of bulls and goats and turtle doves and olive oil and all the other things that happen. Oil. Once. That's how perfect Jesus' salvation is. Once and for all mankind, his sacrifice was sufficient. Romans 8, 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. That's an interesting thing here. People want to throw Paul out sometimes, but what the law weakened by the flesh, how could the law be weakened by the flesh? Well, we see that in the last days of Jesus's life. He spends his time when he journeys to Jerusalem, taking odds with the religious leadership of that day. Why was the religious leadership at odds with Jesus? Because they took the law and they weakened it by flesh. Oh, the Bible doesn't say this, but in order for you to not transgress this, you need to do these seven things. And honestly, part of our little corner of Christianity where we're coming out of is they've lived in that. Oh, you do what on the Sabbath? Oh, Oh, well, the sun doesn't go down for another 35 seconds. You're going to do what? And we, we weaken the law because we become pharisaical. We become hypocrites. We become judges. Well, I'm not the high priest that the book of Hebrews talks about. I'm not a Levite. So I don't even get to claim the Levitical priesthood. And I'm still kind of unsure how people get to claim that they're a modern-day Levite. But I'm not either one of those. So if I'm not either one of those, why do I think I get to stand in the judgment seat to weaken the very commandments that the Lord gives? This is something I really struggled with for years, and thank God He's slowly but surely healing me from this. Slowly but surely. 1 Timothy 2. Oh, sorry, I didn't finish that. We can buy what the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the, uh, in the likeness of the sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned the sin in the flesh. These passages are beautiful because it also tells us once you receive and accept and profess the salvation of Jesus Christ, you don't continue to go do whatever you want. Once you accept the salvation and profess the atoning work of Jesus Christ, if you choose to turn around and willfully make the decision to go back to whatever sinful nature, whatever, whatever issues you had, and you willfully chose to do that, you are spitting on the sacrifice of Jesus. I know it's hard stepping on your toes. Maybe I'm a little apostolic today. Hey, there you go, Ian. I'm bouncing back in it. You don't spit on Jesus. Don't turn that into a t-shirt. First <laughs> Timothy 2, 5 through 6. For there is one God. Oh man, I love this. I love this. Love this verse. Love this verse. I actually was in a band in high school called Ransom. And this is where we got the terminology. I really sang, I sounded like Alvin from Alvin and the Chipmunks at that point in time because I thought I had to sing like somebody else. So I was like, oh man. And sooner or later, I hit puberty and I learned how to actually sing. But it's out of this verse where we can't got the name for that band. 
1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6. And again, I know I'm rolling through these. The, the PDF will be published tomorrow. The video will be published. The podcast will be published because Cam's making sure the camera doesn't shut off. Um, and so you can go get all the notes, scripture references, go through them, whatever. You can download it, do all that stuff. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the Christ Jesus. Mm. One God, a God, one mediator between God and man. Who? Not Moses, not Aaron, Jesus. Yeshua. Who gave himself as a ransom for all. So the people that you're judging, because they eat pork, he gave, he gave his life as a ransom for them. The people that you might pass judgment on because they go to a Sunday church, he gave his life for them. The prostitute, he gave his life for them. The person who robbed the bank, he gave his life for them. He ransomed so that they could have the same free gift that each and every one of us has received. And until their dying breath, their last breath, our prayer should always be, and our example should always be, you are not too far gone. He's still there. He still loves you. He still wants you. Who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. One mediator, the testimony was to be given at a specific time. They're like, well, how come, how come, he, didn't, how come he didn't have Moses tell the Israelites? Three centuries from now, it's kind of like a building project. If we raise a million dollars, we can build our building. Here's what this building's going to look like. It's really cool. He didn't tell Moses on Mount Sinai, I need you to go down and I need you to tell them all about me, exactly what I'm going to do, when I'm going to come, because it's such a great secret, I, I got to keep it in. No, he said, we have to lead the people. God is one of the greatest pastor shepherds there is, because he will lead the people. Lead the people. And he's more patient than any pastor or shepherd I've ever met in my life. Until the time that God chose to send the perfect high priest, the perfect mediator, there were systems, structures, and covenants made with our forefather. We break it down. We say the old covenant, the new covenant. There's many covenants. We already went through that. So God is progressively developing the relationship with his people to get them from being slaves to being co-heirs with him. Not an overnight process. It's never going to be an overnight process. It has to be in his timing, by his spirit alone. Number six, Jesus is our salvation. Acts chapter 4, 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we can be saved. When people try to take and depart the scripture out and say, well, Yeshua is just really an ambassador. Yeshua is just really a prophet. Yeshua is just that. Well, if that's the case, then prophets can save. If that's all he is, then, then prophets can save. The Bible, Luke tells us, there's no other name under heaven by which you can be saved. They're also missing the point when we get so technical that they say, well, this is why we have to say Yahuwah, Yahashua, whatever, whatever pronunciation of the Lord. I, they mean well. They see scripture like this and they say, well, there's only one name you can be saved by. And if I don't know that name, then, then I can't be saved. And so their intentions are good. How they go about it is a little misguided. And so when Jesus, I was saved under the name of Jesus, I did not need to get re-saved when I found Yeshua. Um, 
And I mean, I'm still not convinced that Yeshua is maybe necessarily the perfect Hebrew. Um, you, we get into the conversations about Yahweh, Yahovah, all that. When people are going down the rabbit hole of like, well, I've studied it out and I feel convicted. I'm like, I wish you wouldn't have told me you studied it. Just tell me you feel convicted to call him this. That's fine. I don't care. When you tell me you studied it, then you can realize there's no definitive evidence for any specific thing. Especially when you realize that it was really more like, uh, really more like Joshua, Yehoshua, than it was Yeshua or Yahshua or whatever. But the, the, the theology and the doctrine of Yah has to be in all things like well-meaning, misplaced. Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. Yet it was with the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and will, and the will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. One of the greatest lines. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Transgressors, Our earthly systems, bodies, and carnality has to die so that our soul can be redeemed back to God the Father. Through the death of our perishable fleshly selves, the Lord buries His righteous judgment against the sins we committed in our flesh, and He, through His atoning work, through our profession of faith, restores and cleanses the soul back to God. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 5.24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified their flesh with his passions and desires. Jesus' salvation by offering us a way to be atoned for the fleshly sins we have. You cannot live a perfect, non-sinful life. You need a way back. This is why works-based salvation is extremely dangerous. You can't work yourself into God's good gracious, uh, graces of salvation. You can't save yourself. This is one of the hardest things for roots-based messianic people to understand. If I just keep the law right, God will find favor with me. If I just do this, I will have a status with God. I can tell you what that actually does. It creates arrogance, pride, and reliance of self. When you realize you have to be humble and submitted, I'm going to screw up, I'm going to screw up, I'm going to screw up. I'm going to screw up. It's not about you're not going to screw up. You are going to screw up. And you get humble enough to say, thank God I'm not going to stand on my own merit and salvation can be taken from me because I suck at life. Jesus didn't suck at life. And not only did he not suck at life, he didn't suck at life so well that he actually took all of our suck in our life and buried it along with our flesh so our souls could be restored back to God. 
Sometimes, guys, you have to just look at yourself in the mirror and tap yourself on the back and say, Jesus loved me so much, I can take a deep breath when I misstep. I didn't keep the Sabbath this way this guy wanted me to. Take a deep breath. Jesus still died for you. And don't grow bitter because Jesus also died for the self-righteous. It's okay to breathe. Matthew 1, 21. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. We're called his people. Jesus called us Jesus freaks. We're his people. So it shouldn't be a little foreign than to stand on a box in the middle of the city and claim we have a dream. Moses and Elijah testified of the completed work to come. You know, this is important again for where we come from. I keep saying it's important. It's all important. It's the word of God. But if we're going to quote Moses to possibly throw some sort of wrinkle into who Jesus is or who Jesus says he is. Let's let Moses testify for a second. Luke 9, 28, 36. Oh, how did Luke talk to Moses? Moses was dead. Hmm. We should read the word of God. Now about eight days after saying these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him. Who are the two men? Moses and Elijah. Game, set, match. Wait a second. So so Moses appeared while they were praying on the mountain to do what? what well, why, why was Moses and Elijah there? Pretty big deal, right? Like, we might celebrate this time like, oh, Moses and Elijah were on the mountain. We don't want to celebrate when the heavens open up and they declared, hey, go to, uh, go to this little barn on the, side of the, on the side of this town where you'll find the king of all kings. We don't want to talk about that. But we'll celebrate when Moses and Elijah show up unless it doesn't fit our narrative. Because what did Moses and Elijah say? Who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were, were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Okay, this wasn't a bad dream. They didn't trip on some, uh, on some bad drugs. They saw while they were asleep, and when they awoke, they saw it again. There's your two witnesses right there. And as the men were parting with him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents. They're about to have a sleepover. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Okay, they're talking to Jesus. So if this is a bad dream, if this is a bad interpretation, if this is not right, Jesus right now is going to step in and be like, uh, no, this isn't what happened. You guys are tripping. No. What does he say? Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And he was saying these things, a cloud came over and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is the, my son. Okay, so M Moses and Elijah are there to prophesy. Jesus is with them. They're still not exactly sure what's going on here, and all of a sudden they get Yahweh? That's a dinner party I would like to be invited to, especially if it's on a cloud. 
This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Luke testifies that Moses and Elijah show up with Jesus to tell about what's getting ready to happen. I'm a little excited. I didn't get an invite. My notifications weren't on on WhatsApp, apparently. Hi, Ezra. Moses and Elijah testify of what's getting ready to happen, and then Yahweh does it at the same time. That establishes more than two witnesses. It establishes the elders' terminology and criteria of three witnesses, Moses, Elijah, Yahweh, all testifying about what Jesus is, who Jesus is, and what's about to take place. Moses didn't get to go into the promised land, but this might trump that. He's on a cloud with Yahweh, with Jesus, with Elijah. One more person, and they're about ready to have a pickup basketball team. Oh, man. The greatest of all times. Moses and Elijah. But we don't, want to, we, we don't want to take the testimony of the people who we put high as elders and leaders when we're reading Mosaic Covenant, the, the Levitical priesthood. They testify to Jesus. Oh. Man, Luke gets all the cool engagements. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you with you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for your sins in accordance with the commandments and the testimony of the word of God. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is why first fruit sunrise service has become my favorite portion of what we do all year long. Because, I mean, it'd be really weird if we were in Lions Park uh, in, in the evening. And don't get me wrong, technically somewhere between the sun down on Saturday and the sunrise on Sunday, he was, he was born. Uh, or born, excuse me, he was raised out of the tomb. But he was buried. He was raised on the third day. Can you imagine in the middle of those three days? Because they testified, Moses, Elijah, other people are testifying. Jesus has now told his disciples, this is what's going to happen. Until it happens, there's a lot of, what's going on here? The moment it happens, it's like, oh my goodness. I cannot believe I got to witness this. I cannot believe that it's true. I cannot believe that this is what's happened. It's a little bit awe-inspiring and also scary at the same point in time. Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When you throw out portions of the book of Hebrew, you throw out crucial pieces of information that God used to tell you, is Moses equal to Jesus? He tells you. Why do we not want to believe God? Why do we think we are God? He was the perfecter of the faith. That doesn't mean that Moses wasn't good. It doesn't mean that David wasn't good. It doesn't mean that there wasn't positive things. The perfecter. Jesus. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Jesus is the perfecter of the faith. Colossians 1.20 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Through him reconciles. Through him reconciles. Not through Sinai, not through the temple, not through your works. Through him, he reconciles everything. He's the only one with the power to do. Simple salvation. I'm actually really, really impressed with myself. I got through my notes. And I sidetracked a little bit and I yelled a little bit. This has been a good day. Simple salvation. You must believe that Jesus is who he says he is. That's, that's the first thing for the people in this room. Because a lot of times we have the Torah and we talk about the Torah and the feasts and the festivals and all these things. You cannot be saved because you keep Sukkot. You cannot be saved because you eat perfect dietary food. You cannot be saved because you found the secret scroll of the exact length of the Zitziot. You cannot be saved out of anything you do except for believe that Jesus is who he says he is. That he did what he said he was going to do. Did what the writers of the New Testament, the writers of the Old Testament, the prophets have all testified of. You have to confess after you believe. I can say to you right now, I profess Jesus is my salvation. But if I do not believe that Jesus is my salvation, I have given you lip service. This is why we also see the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We should see fruit if God's Spirit is living inside of us. I can say a lot of things, and there are a lot of people who say a lot of things, but if you step back and look for the fruit, is God in them? Do they really believe God? And so they adjust their life and their thought. I would say that the scripture shows us that they professed with their lips, but their heart was far from him. Believe in God. Profess with your lips that Jesus is Lord. He's not some lesser being. You can't profess that Jesus is some sort of like modern Levitical priest or he's Lord. Profess with your lips that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. He's El Shaddai. He's whatever name of God you want to call. If you want to minimize him, then you are not professing with your lips that Jesus is God. You're professing that Jesus is a Hellerman, or Jesus is a Frankie, or Jesus is a carpenter, or Jesus is this. And he might have been those things. Because the Bible says he was some of those things. Not a Frankie or a Hellerman. But he was a stonemason slash carpenter. Profess with your lips, Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? In him are all things. Through him are all things. You are alive because he allowed you to be alive. You thrive because he allows you to thrive. You have suffering because he allows you to have suffering. And through all things, he deserves the glory. The perfect lamb who was slain before the foundation of the earth that he gave his life so that you could be born again in him. I don't care how you were born. I was born that way. Bible says, you're supposed to be born again. Born again. Born again. 
Oh, I was born into a non-believing family. I don't care. The Bible says you have to be born again. Crucify the flesh, be born again. Oh, I, I was born to like certain people. I don't care. The Bible says you were born, need to be born again. Oh, I was born into money. I don't care. It says you need to be born again. Oh, I was born in poverty, so you know, God can't love me. I was born in poverty. You have to be born again. You can't birth yourself again. And if you ask your mother to do so, she's out. Nope, did my job. Peace out. See ya. God says you must be born again. You didn't deserve it. You didn't obtain it because you did something. He did it all. There is no other method by which you can be saved and receive salvation than to believe Jesus is who he said he is, profess with your lips that he is Lord. And then what do we do? People say, well, go and sin no more. Yeah, right. How, how's that worked out? For everybody throughout all time, you are going to sin. So what do you do when you believe he is who he says he is? You profess with your lips that he is your salvation, that he is your Lord, that he is everything. What do you do? You do exactly what every husband and wife should do. You leave whatever else that's not of him behind and you cleave to him with everything that you have. God does not tell you that when you believe and profess, you have to have it all figured out. This is one of the greatest errors of our own minds. I can't approach God with this stain. I can't approach God with this issue. I can't approach God with this sin. He says, follow me. I will help you. I will lead you. I will guide you. If you profess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and you go to the Bible trying to figure out how you can be smarter than somebody else or to use the word of God as a weapon against somebody else, you better step back because that's not what God did. And I hate to be the hippie with the man bun. For God so loved the world, that's you, 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 that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Some of us don't have life. Some of us are scared to step to the left or to the right. Some of us are scared what other people might think about you. Let me ask you a question tonight to dwell on this week. If you go back and study the study guide, watch the, the video podcast, you have internal conversations with your family. I hope you do all those things. Let me ask you a question. Why are you so scared about what anybody in this room thinks over what God thinks? Why are we scared about if I walk out this way, if I dress this way, somebody's going to be very offended with me. Why didn't you take it to God first? Hey, God, are you good with me coming to church in a bikini? Hey, Chris, I think that's a bad idea. Okay. Like, God's not going to steer you wrong. And I know that's a joke. I'm trying to lighten the mood a little bit because this is a pretty serious topic. Like, I don't suggest you ask God if you can wear a bikini to church. But like, as a whole, some of you are more scared of how somebody is going to interpret where you're at in the walk of your faith than you are scared about taking it to the Lord and standing in 
a firm foundation of this is where the Lord has me. This is unheard of in the Messianic Hebrew Roots movement. We're not in that movement. We're a non-denominational Christian church, but we have a lot of people that are associated with that. We have to come to a place where we accept the fact that Jesus allows salvation to people who could come to our church who don't eat pork, who could come to our church who keep Christmas. Oh my God, they're going to hell. We have to get to a place where somebody who, who maybe doesn't even know Jesus. The, the Bible does not give me the charter as a pastor to create a church of like-minded people before they ever walk through the door. It's a hospital for people who are sick, including myself, who need Jesus. We have to reach out. But if we can't be okay with other people who profess Jesus who currently are at a different spot of their walk and we can't love them, we can't fellowship with them, we're never going to reach the people that Jesus dined with, ever. God did not call me to set up a university, the CFU. It stands for something, I'm just not gonna say it out loud. He didn't call me to set up a university. He called us to make disciples. He called us to reach the lost. He called us to make an impact in lives in the community. We have to take baby steps and realize that our salvation is also for everybody else who doesn't walk like us. So we need to start being comfortable in where we're at in our relationship with the Lord, that we can talk to Him, we can use wise counsel, and we can walk forward the way that He's called us to walk and stop worrying about, like Paul told us, stop judging people and how they do it. We have to start looking at salvation as the most precious gift we've been entrusted with and the most precious gift we can try to offer to somebody else. I will die on this hill. I will go out like the Godfather, blaring guns. I'm not taking you back to Sinai. I'm not taking you back to the temple, first temple period, to the tabernacle, to the second temple. I'm taking you towards Jesus and he can take you wherever he needs to take you because I'm not God. Jesus is. Salvation is the greatest gift. If you can do it on Christmas Day, do it on Christmas Day. If you can do it on Christmas Eve, do it on Christmas Eve. If you can do it on Purim, do it on Purim. Do it every day of the year. Because every day of the year, somebody dies who hasn't heard that Jesus loves them, Jesus is Lord, Jesus came for them, and that we will bear responsibility before the Lord on those who we chose to try to make kosher eaters or tzitzit wearers when all they needed to know is that I don't feel the love of anybody. And God said, I loved you so much, I sent my own son. Salvation, a free gift for every person. It is the greatest gift. Believe what God says about himself. Profess that he is Lord and you shall be saved.